difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism in some ways. And so out of those Puritans came uh, people called the Congregationalist, who didn't want the Episcopal form of church government with the bishops and everything that the Church of England has. And they wanted a congregational form of church government like we have. And then uh, out of that, out of those uh, congregationalists came Baptists. Two groups of Baptists called general in particular, some more Calvinistic in particular and some more Arminian. Uh, We talked about that last time also. And finally, in the 18th century, we didn't get to last week, coming out of the Anglican Church is the Methodist Church. And you can see on figure one there, we've actually covered all of those denominations except uh, the Methodist denomination. And of course, the founder of the Methodist denomination was John Wesley. John Wesley <clears throat> was, uh, lived in the 18th century. And he was a graduate of Oxford. He ordained a minister in the Church of England. They called him priest. And he served in a parish ministry for a while, but then he came back to Oxford. He'd been made a fellow of Oxford, so he had had a place to stay there. He taught there some. He went back. His brother Charles, his younger brother, was there at Oxford, and, and they were very concerned about holy living. Uh, living a devout Christian life. And so they formed a club called, they were called the Holy Club by people who didn't really like them. (laughs) Uh, They thought they were too holy (laughs) because they were reading their Greek New Testament, they were praying, they were fasting, doing good works, and so they were kind of, oh, these are the holy rollers, these are the holy club. But other people called them the Methodist, the Methodist, because They did things by method, by rule, by discipline. And that title stuck, the Methodist. So they had this small group. Another man joined the group in 1735. I just want to mention him briefly, a man by the name of George Whitfield. Now, Whitfield had been generally converted that year, 1735, when he was there at Oxford and He was a member of this group. He was then ordained into the Church of England. And he began as a Methodist preacher. Now these Methodist preachers like Wesley and Whitfield, they didn't establish churches. Uh, They just preached. Uh, They preached, uh, Whitfield preached in the open, in the fields. Whitfield was an amazing fellow. He had a tremendous voice, very expressive voice, dramatic voice. He could sway large audiences. He made many trips to America. He was a famous person in America. He was was like the Billy Graham of of his day. If if Time Magazine was around, he'd be Time's Man of the Year back then in the 1700s. He was so famous. Uh, He was a good friend of uh, Benjamin Franklin. And uh, Franklin was, he was fascinated with Whitfield and his ability to sway audiences and speak. And once, uh, Whitfield, once Whitfield was speaking in Philadelphia, Franklin's t- hometown, and he was speaking, he spoke on the courthouse steps. 
And it was just a huge crowd. And they were all very quiet listening to him. And, and Franklin decided, being a scientist, he wanted to determine how many people can hear this man and how far away can they hear him, you know, without any microphone amplification. So he walks back from Whitfield 500 feet, and he can hear Whitfield 500 feet away, and he estimates that there are 30,000 people there who can hear Whitfield. Now, Whitfield adopted the Calvinistic theology of John Wesley, but uh, I mean, John, I'm sorry, John Calvin. He adopted the Whitfield adopted the Calvinistic theology of John Calvin. He was really reformed in that sense. But Wesley adopted the Arminian theology, and so they came to loggerheads. And in 1740, they just kind of went their own way. Whitfield was not an organizer, and he didn't really leave anything behind. There, are, there were a few Calvinistic Methodist churches, but <clears throat> not really. It was uh, Wesley who was the great organizer, and he is the founder, really, of the Methodist church that we have today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, although uh, I say here, although Wesley was an Anglican minister, he wasn't actually converted until 1738. He had already made a trip to the New World, to Georgia, but that was kind of a failed ministry. He comes back, and he goes to a meeting, and he's listening to the preface of Martin Luther's commentary being read. And in that preface, that gets hold of him, the truth there. And he is saved, he says, at that particular point. And he starts preaching. And, he, and Whitfield says, you should preach in the fields, and he does. But he forms societies. He doesn't form churches. He forms these societies and these Methodist societies where his converts would meet. But he still wanted them to go back to the Anglican church for baptism, for communion. He, every week you should go back to the Sunday service there, but they still had these societies where they met. They were like little churches. But Whitfield, I mean, Wesley in his entire life never actually broke away in his entire life from the Anglican church. He stayed in the Anglican church his whole life. But he was a, a, he was a tremendous uh, preacher. He, he traveled all over England. He, he, he traveled for 50 years on horseback and won thousands of people to the Lord. And uh, it's said he preached 40,000 sermons. He would preach several times a day. So he was a tremendous evangelist and preacher and won a lot of people and established the Methodist Church, ultimately, as we'll see, in England. But it really took off in America. We'll talk about that later. Finally, at the, near the end of his life, he set up a, in 1784, I mentioned, a structure called the Yearly Conference of People Called Methodists to kind of keep the movement alive. And he drew up what's called the 25 Articles of Religion. If you remember, the Church of England had adopted their statement of faith called the 39 Articles. Well, he took that statement of faith and he whittled it down. He got rid of all the Calvinistic parts, tossed those out, <clears throat> and kept what was left called the 29 articles which are still really the statement of faith of Methodist churches today. Uh, Wesley himself believed in infant baptism in the sense that baptism regenerates the infant. Now best I can tell Methodists don't really hold to that today. I've read a lot of Methodist stuff, their official stuff. It's more of a covenant like we talked about that baptism makes an infant part of the church and we want 
we want to nurture the church, nurture the child. It'll grow up and we'll teach the child and they'll profess Christ ultimately. Uh, in 1795, after years, four years after Wesley's death, the Methodists in Britain formed a separate, legally distinct church in 1795. Now, Wesley, as I said, was an Arminian. He held he was an evangelical Arminian. He's often called his theology is called often called evangelical Arminianism. But to that <clears throat> theology added something very distinctive. Something he called a, a doctrine of sanctification that he called by different names. Christian perfection or perfect love, entire sanctification, full salvation, the second blessing. And he said, just as you're saved instantaneously by faith, justified by faith, you can be sanctified instantaneously by an act of faith. Sin can be eradicated instantly by an act of faith. And so you will not commit any known sin. And this doctrine of perfectionism was embraced by Methodists, especially in America. And then later by holiness churches. Pastor Ken was in a holiness church. They had this doctrine. And most Pentecostals, though not all Pentecostals. Well, let's talk about uh, Roman numeral two here, denominations in colonial period in America. Uh, these European denominations that we've talked about, they spread to America, what would become the United States, beginning in the 17th century, the 1600s. The, the colonies were generally segregated based on their relationship to Christianity. And so figure two there, that map, you can see that New England was mostly Puritan congregationalist, the pink area. The middle colonies were characterized by some diversity, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware. Uh, and the southern colonies, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, were basically Anglican uh, colonies. Let's talk about, on page three here, then, the Church of England, or Anglicanism. So Anglicanism was the first Protestant religion to come to America in Jamestown in 1607. So Jamestown is the first permanent English settlement in the United States in uh, 1607. And they were devout uh, Anglicans. The first thing they did was build a church, a barn-like structure. And they had religious services, a lot, a lot of religious services. They wanted to establish the Church of England and they wanted to convert the Indians and so forth. Eventually, other Anglicans came. An Anglican minister named Alexander Whitaker came in 1611. He planted churches around Jamestown. He was responsible for the conversion of Pocahontas. You may have heard of her. And I say in 1619, the First Virginia Assembly met in the Jamestown church and enacted laws that mandated the observance of Sabbath, weekly church attendance, collection of taxes for the support of the church, and Anglicanism became the established church, state church, throughout the colony of Virginia until 1786, until after the Revolutionary War. And they persecuted people who descended from Anglicanism. Now, there were Baptists around and others, but they got anybody else who wasn't an Anglican, they would persecute you. 
So Anglicanism was established in all the southern colonies, in Virginia, the Carolinas, North Carolina and South Carolina eventually split, in Georgia, the last colony. Uh, Anglicanism, Anglicanism, the Church of England, was also established in New York. New York, or New Amsterdam, was originally settled by the Dutch. And in 1644, the British captured it, took over. It became an English colony. And the Church of England was established as the state church uh, in uh, New York. And all these Anglican churches were supported by taxes. You had to pay taxes if you lived in those states to support the Anglican church. I mentioned under number four, in 1632, an English nobleman by the name of Lord Baltimore, who was a Roman Catholic, he got a charter for the colony of Maryland. And he got it so that Roman Catholics could go there and not be persecuted. Uh, An act of toleration for all Trinitarian Christians was issued in 1649. But the Roman Catholics were always a minority in Maryland. There there was always more, more Baptists and other denominations there. And in fact, in 1692, an act of the General Assembly made Anglicanism the established religion. So although Lord Baltimore started out this colony as kind of a religious tolerance, it didn't last. In 1692, Anglicanism, Church of England, was the state church again. Well, what about the Congregational Church? We noticed that the Congregationalists England, in England were the Puritans. Uh, Many Puritans were Congregationalists. Some were Presbyterians, but some were Congregationalists. And they established the Congregational Church in England. But it thrived more in America. And the founders of Congregation in America were the Puritans. We talked about them before, how they came in 1620 on the Mayflower. And then more Puritans came and established the colony of Massachusetts Bay in 1630. About 20,000 Puritans came in the next 10 years. So it became a large colony there. Eventually, Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay were merged together. You know, sometimes I can remember when I was in school, I, I had the idea that the Puritans came here because they wanted religious freedom, you know, and they were just like the, the big founders of religious freedom in America. That's just not true. They wanted religious freedom for themselves but not for anybody else. (laughs) They didn't believe in religious tolerance for anybody else except themselves. And so they came and established the Congregational Church as the state church in these colonies, and they persecuted others. They hanged people uh, for religious uh, disagreements. So they weren't very tolerant. Congregationalism was set up as the state law. They eventually established colonies in Connecticut, New Hampshire, uh, and Congregationalism was the state religion. And it was supported by taxes. So uh, all the New England colonies were supported by taxes. They were congregational, except for Rhode Island. That was the one state. And all this was, you know, well, it even, it even went past the Revolution, Revolutionary War. Uh, you had to support the Congregational Church in Connecticut until 1818, and Massachusetts until 1833. Only Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island did not compel any taxpayer support for religion. People get confused about what the First Amendment was and what the the Bill of Rights was. 
The First Amendment was ratified in 1791, but it only applied to the federal government at first. It said the federal government can't establish a religion, but the states could establish any religion they wanted to, and they did. So it had no effect on these churches. Uh, in 1868, uh, the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution, and it prohibited states from denying people liberty without due process. And then the Supreme Court began gradually to use that, I understand, to apply the First Amendment to the states. But that happened during the 1920s and the 1940s. It was that late until the First Amendment was really applied to the states as we have it today. So there wasn't complete religious tolerance in America at all. There was some, Rhode Island, you know, and Pennsylvania, as we'll see, but not throughout. Well, what about the Baptist Church? Roger Williams was an ordained uh, Anglican minister, and he came to America in 16, uh, 1631, came to Massachusetts Bay, and he had differing views, and he was kind of forced out of Massachusetts. He was forced out, and he established the colony of Rhode Island in 1636. By 1638, he had adopted Baptist views, and he established a church in Providence that's called the First Baptist Church on American soil, Roger Williams in 1638. And Rhode Island was the first place in America where colonies had freedom of religion, religious tolerance. It was a human right. Now, atheists were excluded, open atheists, as I mentioned. If you were an atheist, well, you, so it's not, to, it's not complete atheist. But everybody else was, was allowed in Rhode Island to worship as they choose. It was the first colony to separate the institutions of church and state. Uh, as we think of today. Now, other Baptist churches sprang up in the colonies. The second one was in, also in Rhode Island by John Clark in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, and they were, some other churches were established in New England despite the opposition of the Congregationalists. But they were few. By 1740, there were about eight Baptist churches in Massachusetts and so forth. So uh, it was difficult going. Baptists had their greatest uh, liberty in the middle colonies, particularly the colony of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn. And in, William, in Pennsylvania, there was complete religious tolerance, uh, the most complete religious tolerance in Pennsylvania. So it was a haven for all kinds of religious groups. People went there, as we'll see, Lutherans and Presbyterians. But Baptists went there. And numerous uh, Calvinistic Baptists, these particular Baptists from England and Wales, migrated to Pennsylvania, established a large number of churches, and they organized what's called the Philadelphia Baptist Association in 1707. That's really the first organized fellowship of Baptist churches in America. They call themselves regular Baptists to distinguish themselves from the general or the Arminian Baptists. They say regular Baptists. We still use that term today. 
1760, this Philadelphia Association included churches throughout the colonies, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and they adopted for their statement of faith the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was written in 1689. If you can remember back to our discussion of Baptists in England, uh, the particular Baptists there, uh, as they got organized, they wrote a confession of faith called the First London Baptist Confession of Faith. But then the Presbyterians wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646, and it was really good. <laughs> and the Baptists said, this is really good, except for this infant baptism stuff and some other things. So they modified the Westminster Confession to the Second London Baptist Confession, 1689. That's what was adopted in America, and it's still adopted in Baptist churches throughout America today. Churches uh, hold to the 1689 uh, confession. Uh, I say here in number six, Baptist beliefs have sometimes been summarized using the term Baptist as an acrostic. Now, not all of these are distinctive to Baptist churches like you know, biblical authority. Well, Presbyterians believe in biblical authority, you know. But some of them are distinctive, like the autonomy of the local church. Only if you have a congregational form of church government do you have autonomy of the local church. If you've got a Presbyterian, you're losing some autonomy. If you have an Episcopal, you're losing a lot of autonomy. <laughs> so uh, autonomy of the local church. Two offices in the local church. That's a Baptist distinctive. Uh, save church membership. That is only professing believers can be members of the church. That's something you don't find in Presbyterian churches or Episcopal churches or Lutheran churches, that kind of thing. Well, what about the Presbyterian and Reformed churches? They both trace their history, both Presbyterian and Reformed, back to John Calvin, his Reformation in Geneva. The differences between them are sometimes minimal, though the, I say the Presbyterian churches in America tend to stem from the Reformation in Scotland, John Knox. The Reformed churches tend to stem from Protestant churches, Reformed churches in the Netherlands, the Reformed church in the Netherlands. I mentioned a, friend, um, a man by the name here of Francis McAmey, who was from Ireland, but he's a Presbyterian. He came... In 1684, uh, he was sent by his presbytery as a missionary to America. He preached. He was very effective. And he formed the first Presbyterian church in America in 1683 in Maryland. And he evangelized other states around. And eventually, the first uh, presbytery or association of Presbyterian ministers' churches was founded in Philadelphia in 1706. And they adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's kind of standard for all Presbyterians. They had a general assembly, which is higher, you know, that uh, didn't put that chart in there, but you have Presbyteries, then you have a general assembly above that. They had one of those in 1789, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. They established a college eventually, Pres uh, the Log Cabin College, but... College of New Jersey, it was called, and then Princeton College, Princeton University today, for the training of, of Presbyterian ministers, and then Presbyterian, then Princeton Seminary for the same purpose. 
Uh, I mentioned here in number four that American churches styled reform tend to trace their history from the Dutch reform immigrants in New Amsterdam, later New York, when the British took over. A man by the, by the name of uh, Jonas uh, Michaelius uh, organized the first Dutch reformer congregation, which was a branch of the Dutch reformed church in the Netherlands in 1628. And this church has existed continuously since 1628. It's called the Reformed Church in America. The Lutherans that we talked about, uh, they came from Scandinavia, they came from the Netherlands, they came from Germany in the 1600s, both to New York, New New Amsterdam, also to Wilmington, Delaware. But most Lutherans, uh, the most Lutherans came from Germany and they came to Pennsylvania. A lot of Lutherans came to Pennsylvania in the 17th and 18th century. One of the great leaders of this was a man by the name of Henry Muhlenberg. He kind of laid the foundation for what would become the Lutheran Church in America in 1748. He called into existence the first American organization of Lutherans, the Ministerium of Pennsylvania or the Synod of Pennsylvania. So Lutherans kind of called their denomination synods. But some some of their denominations have several synods in them. There's like the Missouri Synod, that's a denomination. It's a Missouri denomination. But some, some denom- Lutherans have several synods, but the Missouri Synod is one synod. And so uh, that started the Lutheran church. They had pastors and various churches. And he prepared a standard liturgy and created a constitution. Now on page 7, talk about the Methodist church here just a second. John Wesley, you remember, was working in uh, England, and in 1771, he uh, put out a, a plea for Methodist preachers to go to America, you know, and spread the Methodist faith there. And so a man named Francis Asbury answered the call. He came to Philadelphia in 1771. He was very evangelistic, very aggressive, and he was a circuit rider. He would go. He would go to. He would go to locations. He'd preach for a while and then he'd go to another location and preach for a while. He just traveled on horseback all around and he just preached at these different circuits. Um, And he remained in America at the time of the revolution. Remember the Anglican church, the church of England was sided with England in in, in the revolutionary war and the Methodists were associated with them. So they weren't looked upon too favorably, but he stayed. He didn't go back. Some, some Methodists went back, but he stayed and he preached and so forth. And uh, he, uh, he, he remained there and spread the Methodist faith. I say in number two here, the Church of England, as I say, was loyal to the British government. So the connection that Methodists in America had to the Church of England had to be broken. That just couldn't withstand the revolution. So in 1784, Wesley decided that he would ordain Thomas Coke in England to come over to America and be one of the first bishops, one of the first superintendents, he called them, of the Methodist Church. So this would be the leadership. He would be, and he would, and Coke would ordain Asbury, and he would be a superintendent. And so at the Christmas conference in 1784, 
the Methodist Episcopal Church was formed. So the Methodist Episcopal Church was formed in America in 1784, even before the Methodist Church in England was formed as a separate organization. And so these two men were the two leaders. They immediately called themselves bishops because this is Methodists have an Episcopal form of church government. The, the, the church is ruled by bishops, and then under them are pastors in the congregation. And uh, they would go on these circuits and preach at these different locations. And that tradition is still in Methodist churches today. Technically, Methodist pastors are appointed like for a year. And then maybe they may be appointed another year. Or not, and, then, and then they're moved around. They can be moved to another location. Now, that doesn't always happen. Guys can stay a long time. But it's common for Methodist preachers to stay for a few years and move to another location and move to another location. That, that goes back to this circuit riding that, that Asbury and Coke were doing. Well, let's talk about modern Protestant nominations in America. In order to do that, I've got to talk about liberalism in the churches. And this is not easy to describe, but I'm going to try my best. I hope I, this is somewhat clear in what I'm going to say here. I say, you know, if you look back to the year, say, 1850, you could have sat down, we could have sat down with a group of pastors from different Protestant denominations, and I mentioned like Baptist, Methodist, Reform, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, and we would all agree on some basic fundamental Christian doctrines like biblical authority, justification by faith, the deity of Christ. They would be, you know, broad agreement on kind of essential doctrines. But this all changed with the rise of what's called theological liberalism, or we call liberal theology, in many denominations. Theological liberalism is usually traced back to the Enlightenment, which is or was a 17th and 18th century social and philosophical movement in Europe, came to America, that emphasized reason as the primary source of authority, displacing divine revelation. The Enlightenment viewed reason as an empirical evidence as the primary way to construct a comprehensive system of all things pertaining to scientific and religious knowledge. The Enlightenment was heralded as the age of reason as opposed to the age of faith. And so theological liberalism was simply the Enlightenment applied to theology. Now theological liberalism sought to question everything and hold in suspicion all traditional external authorities and establish new objective conclusions based solely on empirical scientific data in accordance with human reason and not upon faith in God and the word of God. Now these views, these ideas infected colleges and seminaries. The first colleges in America were all set up by religious institutions for the training of ministers. Harvard, Yale, you know, William and Mary. Uh, these, th these colleges were affected by liberalism, li liberal thinking, questioning biblical authority. Liberals claimed and believed that they were genuine Christians, even though they denied fundamental Christian doctrine, doctrines. So they were very moral people often, very moral, and they claimed to be Christians, but they denied the essentials of the faith. 
I say they're perfectly described by the Apostle Paul as having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Now liberals, uh, these, lib- these guys who had liberal ideas, they were able to gain control of most denominations through a policy of not enforcing confessional subscription. That is, almost every denomination, Lutherans, Anglicans, Presbyterians, they, they have some sort of 39 articles or the 29, they have, they have some sort of uh, confession of faith, some doctrinal statement that if you're a minister or you're a teacher, you're supposed to subscribe to. But they said, no, nah, don't worry about that. You don't, we, don't, we don't hold that. We don't, you know. So they didn't enforce that. They didn't enforce that doctrinal belief on their leaders. So you had denominational leaders, pastors, seminary professors who didn't agree, and these false ideas came into these denominations. I mentioned here on number three, page seven, the conflict between liberals and conservatives came to a head in the early part of the 20th century in what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Modernist is just another term for liberal thinking, liberal theology. Modernists denied and fundamentalists defended such doctrines as verbal inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection, reality of miracles. So many of these liberals denied all of these, every single one of them. And by the 1930s, they had gained uh, control of mainline Protestant seminaries denominational headquarters, religious publishing houses. And they were controlling these churches because these churches are controlled from above. The Episcopal Church has bishops, and so they control the church. The Presbyterian Church, it's controlled from above mostly, uh, with local churches not having as much control and much to say. Uh, I say here the term mainline, when I talk about mainline denominations, it's used of denominations which tend to side with the modernists, the liberals. Now the largest mainline churches today are called the Seven Sisters of the American Protestantism. And they are the American Baptist churches, the Christian church, disciples of Christ, the Episcopal church, the Evangelical Lutheran church in America, United Church of Christ, and the United Methodist Church. Let's talk about Baptist churches here for a moment. I say here, since Baptists believe in local autonomy, page 8, they have generally only banded together in local and regional associations. The first of these was the previously mentioned Philadelphia Baptist Association of 1707. It wasn't until 1814 that Baptists formed a national organization, the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States of America for Foreign Missions. What a name. So the first really national thing they formed was the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States of America for Foreign Missions. Now, you can imagine why they formed this. It was for foreign missions. (laughs) It's also called the Triennial Convention. It met every three years. So this was their first national working. 
A complementary organization, the American Baptist Home Missionary Society, was formed in 1832. So the first thing they did, we, we want to get together because we want to support foreign missions, and we also want to have home missions. Now, differences that arose between Baptists in the North and South, chiefly over slavery, resulted in a split that led to the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 and the American Baptist Union, that's the North. Now, I just might mention here that in the Civil War, the Methodist split, the Presbyterian split, the Baptist split. Most of these denominations split over slavery and other issues in the Civil War. So the Baptist split in the South, they formed the Southern Baptist Convention. And in the North, they had the American Baptist Missionary Union. This American Baptist Missionary Union eventually involved in what's called the Northern Baptist Convention. So you had the Southern Baptist Convention and the Northern Baptist Convention. The Northern Baptist Convention eventually changed its name in 1950 to the Northern Baptist Convention and changed to the American Baptist Convention in 1950. And then it changed its name to the American Baptist Churches in the USA in 1972. So it's gone through a lot of name changes here. So you've got the American Baptist in the north, the Southern Baptist in the south. This American Baptist Churches in the USA is considered one of the mainline denominations we talked about. Now I mentioned in number three that liberal theology was more prominent in the northern churches. And the Northern Baptist Convention was controlled by liberals from its very foundation. It's primarily in the North that the fundamentalist modernist controversy was fought out in Baptist circles. Not so much in the South, but we talk about the fundamentalist modernist controversy. It affected Presbyterians, but it affected Baptists, and it really affected them in the North. Now, once the liberals had control in the north, conservatives began to withdraw in the north. And the first group that withdrew in 1932 was called the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Or we say the GARB. So we talk about GARB churches, 1932. The GARB is an evangelical association of Calvinistic churches very similar to CBC. So we have a lot in common with garb churches. We have friends who pastor garb churches. Some of our graduates pastor garb churches. So it's a very conservative evangelical denomination. They pulled out in 1932 because they could see what was happening in the Northern Baptist Convention. Another group pulled out a little later, the, the, called the Conservative Baptist Association, 1947. That's another evangelical group. They pulled out, formed the conservative Baptist. Recently, they changed their name to Venture Church Network 2021. Now let's talk about the South, the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant domination in the United States. Almost 50,000 churches. The Encyclopedia Britannica says, I quote, the SBC by the late 20th century repudiated its history of support for racial segregation and had become one of the most ethnically diverse Protestant denominations in North America. 
So the SBC um, today is a conservative evangelical association of churches who come together for two main purposes, the purposes of missions, both foreign missions and home missions, and schools, that is, training pastors and workers. And they do that through six seminaries that they support. And all Southern Baptist Convention leaders, uh, seminary faculty, missionaries, they have to subscribe to the doctrinal statement of the SBC, which is called the Baptist Faith and Message. The Baptist Faith and Message is a moderately Calvinistic evangelical statement of faith, a very good statement of faith. We would all agree with it. Uh, SB churches, SBC churches range from moderately Calvinistic to kind of moderately Arminian. They, you don't find any churches that don't believe in it. They all believe in eternal security, but they're not as Calvinistic as others. I mentioned on page nine here that by the 1950s, theological liberalism began to impact the SBCs. It came earlier in the north, I think, but by the 1950s, it, it began to impact the, the SBC central bureaucracy and seminaries, but not the majority of the churches. Now, the reason for that is that Baptist churches are autonomous. They're congregational churches, autonomous. And so in the Episcopal Church, the Episcopal Church, the pastor of your church is sent to you by the bishop, and he's trained in the Episcopal seminaries. You can't just choose who you want. So when you have this system of Presbyterianism and Episcopal, uh, the churches don't have as much control. But in Baptist churches, they do. So even though this liberalism was working its way into the Southern Baptist hierarchy, it didn't affect a lot of the churches because they could choose a pastor whoever they wanted to. They, 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 weren't, they, they weren't controlled by the denomination. So that helped them. But there's no question that this was working through the denomination. Uh, by 1960, controversy arose over some Bible study materials that departed from conservative theology. And I'm, I remember this kind of stuff. I, you know, I was kind of came into Christianity when this stuff was going on. I remember some of these Bible study materials being talked about, commentaries and other things that were departing from conservative theology. Well, what, were, what, what did conservatives do? Well, they had a plan to take back the convention, get back control of the denominational headquarters and, the, and all these things, the schools, make sure they're very conservative. And they could do this because in the SBC, they meet each year and they elect a president. <clears throat> and the president is elected by people from the churches who come to the convention. And the president has a lot of power. He... Uh, he, so he, he appoints the boards that nominate trustees for the six convention seminaries, directors of the denomination's bureaucracy. So in 1979, they, the, the, the churches could see, hey, this thing is going the wrong way. They elected Adrian Rogers, who was a pastor in Memphis, a well-known pastor, as a conservative president. And ever since 1979, they've elected a conservative president. And they began to turn things around. Uh, they started appointing conservatives as president of these seminaries. 
and over these institutions. And this was kind of an amazing thing because when I was coming along, we were taught that once the denomination goes a certain way, you can't get it back. But they, they were able to bring it back because of the way the church government was set up and they got, they got control of the, of the convention. I mentioned here that in 1993, Dr. Albert Moeller was appointed president of the SBC flagship seminary, Southern Seminary in Louisville. He replaced practically the entire faculty, turning it into a theologically, thoroughly conservative evangelical seminary, which I can recommend. I say here, however, CBC's leadership believes Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, where I taught, obviously, <laughs> is to be preferred for a number of reasons, including dispensational premillennial theology. But we still appreciate the conservative stance of, of the seminary. And... Uh, when I was studying, when I was uh, contemplating studying for my, I'll tell you just a story here. When I was contemplating studying for my doctor's degree in 1980, <clears throat> I had finished uh, a couple of master's degrees, and I wanted to go for a doctor of theology degree. And I was thinking about Southern. Very, I was tempted, tempted to go to Southern. And the reason I was tempted to go to Southern Seminary was because they had a reputation as sort of the preeminent foremost institution for the study of New Testament Greek. They had a professor there in the early 1900s named A.T. Robertson, and he was considered the foremost Greek scholar in America. He wrote huge uh, grammar and everything. All the textbooks I used in studying Greek when I was in college and seminary were written by his students. So that was the place to go. But... You know, as I looked at the school, I could see that some of the professors were flirting with kind of liberal thinking, liberal theological thinking. So I said, no, I'm not going to go there. But if I was making that decision today, that's where I would go <laughs> today. And in fact, uh, you know, many of my, a number of my students have gone to Southern Seminary to get doctorates. Uh, two of our, two of the professors at the seminary right now went to Southern uh, for doctoral studies. Uh, two others went to another uh, Southern Baptist seminary, a sister seminary, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, got their doctorate. Tim Miller, we know, all know, and Dr. Ryan Meyer, who's teaching the Matthew class. So uh, we're happy that they've turned that around. We're, we're, we're happy about their program. We still would like, if, if guys could, to go to Detroit, but uh, they have like an online program, so they have a lot of, some advantages there at Southern, and we appreciate that conservative stance. I was just going to say here uh, that what happened to the liberals in the convention, most of them left in 1991 and formed a cooperative Baptist fellowship, which is a very liberal denomination. Well, I could say more, and there's a lot more pages here, but I'm going to stop at 12.03, and, and you can read the rest if you need to go to sleep sometime. <laughs> Thanks for staying with me. Appreciate it so much. Bye-bye.